with the globe confirming it as true. To say that the world is in a state of shock this morning would be to understate the situation. The event seems to have taken place at the same time all over the world just about 25 minutes ago. Suddenly and without warning, literally thousands, perhaps millions of people just disappeared. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. There's no time to change your mind. How could you have been so blind? Come on, you ought to laugh right there. That's a good spot. <laughs> Some of you have no idea what just went across your church video screen. Uh, For those of us that were actually Christians in the 70s and 80s, uh, there was a movie called A Thief in the Night. Uh, Before there was, you know, the Little Giants movie and Priscilla Shire's, you know, Praying in the Closet movie, whatever, I forget the name of it. Uh, Before there was all that, there was a movie called A Thief in the Night. And the goal of this movie by its producers was to scare you to death so that you would serve God in case you get left behind. And, um, and so even as we were looking for the footage from it, uh, Pastor Jonathan, who's a millennial, uh, said, uh, this is weird, right? Y'all watch this? And I was like, yes. Every lock-in, come on, somebody, every youth group meeting, you had to watch A Thief in the Night a couple of times. And uh, the premise is taken out of the scripture where Jesus tells us and, and, and the, disciples, uh, the writers of the epistles tell us that he'll come like a thief in the night. And so we used it, uh, which has been hilarious, because uh, we posted some of it on Facebook, and we've been getting hits from different people around the nation that we know. And they're like, please tell me you're not playing that movie at your church It has created in me such a panic that I cannot sleep at night from my childhood. I had to get re-saved because I thought that any minute God hated me and he was going to leave me behind based on that movie. And so anyway, we have been laughing about it back and forth. And uh, as we are finishing up our series called A Thief in the Night, we really have been looking at end time events. And um, whether you know this or not, but one out of 30 verses, uh, excuse me, uh, 30 verses in the New Testament actually somehow connect to end times or the return of Jesus. You'll see also 23 of the 27 New Testament books actually refer to the end time or the return of Jesus Christ as well. Uh, But there are four major passages in the New Testament uh, that actually cover end time events. Uh, we, and we've been studying them. Uh, Matthew chapter 24, which is where Jesus talks about there will be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines. Uh, but be, uh, be aware, uh, keep watch, because uh, no end knows the hour, but I will return uh, in a moment like a thief in the night. And then the Thessalonian passages where, where uh, Paul literally is helping the young church in Thessalonica, and he covers some of it. And then as a uh, third piece, which we'll study today, is First and Second Peter, the books of First and Second Peter. And the fourth being the book of Revelation which I'd originally intended on us covering and making this a four-part series instead of three-part, but we have the privilege next week of having Mr. Cy Rogers minister to us. It's going to be magnificent. I promise you, get a neighbor, a co-worker, you want to be here, um, and he is a dynamic minister and will bring such truth uh, with God, sex, and culture that it's going to blow your mind. It's just going to be exactly what you need to hear, what I need to hear. I'm going to be sitting on the front row taking notes, shouting him down. It's going to be magnificent, and he's going to extend the Sunday night service even to the community even more, and actually we're going to give him in our Sunday evening service about an hour, hour and uh, 20 minutes uh, 
opposed to the 40 minutes or 45 minutes that he'll get in the morning services. So it'll be another topic. You could come back in the evening. And then we, we, so we're skipping the book of Revelation, which is probably not a bad thing in and of itself. Uh, as we've studied these end time teachings, it has been my premise to present to you that none of these passages actually uh, def- are definitive or, or none of these passages do we find a definitive road laid out step by step of end time occurrences. And none of them give us, and then it'll happen like this on this day, and then after that'll come this, and after that'll come that. In fact, all of these passages, what we see is one referring a little bit to something over here, and another one of the writers referring to something over here. And what has happened is over the years, people have woven those together to get kind of an end time, uh, timetable, clock, uh, you know, concept and their different opinions. And what we've done is, and we'll review for a moment, we've, we, we've done in the last few uh, teachings, we've looked at the four different pr- predominant opinions of what will happen in the end time. So we all know that Jesus died and he resurrected, and we all agree with that. And then what scholars call it is we're living in the church age. The church is alive and well on the earth. And then there will come a, a tribulation. There'll become a tribulation time. And then at the end of the tribulation, there will be a great battle, a battle of Armageddon. That'll be where the Antichrist is destroyed. And then there'll be a thousand year reign or millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And then there'll be an end, if you will, a last end of it all, destruction of heaven and earth. New heaven and new earth will have been established. And then there'll be a separation of the goat and the sheep and the and and the Christians will be in heaven and Satan will be locked up forever, blah, blah, blah. And so that's kind of the, 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 the kind of things that we all agree on. What we, what we have back and forth is when certain things are going to happen. Things like the rapture. Now the word rapture is not in scripture. It's called a taking away. Because of the Greek term, we use the word rapture in Christianity a lot today. But it's actually a taking away. And it refers to those believers who are ready for Jesus that will be extracted from the planet. And a lot of, and the four different views kind of look at that in a different way different way where that will happen. So let's look at the first view, and we call this post-trib or post-tribulational and, uh, and also uh, premillennial. And what these guys believe is that there will be a, there will be a tribulation, a seven-year hardship where God will pour out his wrath, that sickness and disease will be prevalent on the earth, people will be dying out, there'll be this apocalyptic season um, that, uh, where the, you know, the four horsemen, you've seen some movies where they reference those kind of, the pale horse did this and the black horse did this and all this kind of stuff. And so, you, and the seals of, were open, and that'll happen during this seven-year period. The post-tribbers believe that we as Christians will go through that. We as sold-out Christians will go through that, and at the end or post-trib, then Jesus will extract us away, and then He will return, fight the battle of Armageddon, and then set up His thousand-year reign, where He will reign on the earth and set everything right for a thousand years until the end judgment. Everything is destroyed, and we all go to heaven. And uh, and so that's post-trib. Pre-tribbers believe that before. For the tribulation, that God will literally extract us who are sold out believers. He will take us away before the great tribulation, that we will be with him, and then he will return at the end of the tribulation on a white horse, and there'll be a great battle of Armageddon. We will come behind him, but we will miss the battle. It'll already be done and finished, and then he'll set up a thousand year reign in which we will co reign with him, those who have been extracted, okay? And that's what we call pre tribbers or pre tribulation concept. Then there's a third, and that is post millennialism. Now, these guys believe that, uh, that the tribulation is just kind of how we live right now. Hardship is just what we're all going through. It's really, it's nothing more than the typical persecution that we're going through. And that actually what has happened is God has put his Holy Spirit inside of us and that we're going to see such a revival that the whole world is going to become Christian. And when that happens, we'll have a thousand years 
of reigning and ruling that Christianity dominates. In other words, that there'll be every president will be a Christian, every dictator will get saved, there'll be full-on revival over a thousand-year period, and at the end of all that, God will separate the sheep and the goat, and he'll go through the final judgment, and it'll all be settled then and there. That's how post-millennials believe. And then there's what's called amillennial, and these guys think that it's all symbolic, that none of it is, is definitively going to happen. It's all symbolic, that it's prophetic scriptures, uh, pieces that all have symbolism, but none of them are actually going to happen in real time like we would think it would or something like that. And so they just believe we'll go all the way through it and then there'll be the final judgment and the end of the earth and so forth and so on. And the reason why I give you the four different opinions because throughout our congregation, we have different opinions about these things. And the reason why I bring it out in our end time teaching is because in none of the passages of scripture that we've studied, in fact, none that I've ever studied, is there a definitive timeline. None of them say, and this will happen, and then this will happen, and then this will happen happen and then this will happen. There's no clear roadmap, and the reason that is is as you study the passages we've been studying, it's because it's not, it's a subthought. The end times and what's going to happen is a subthought. The main thought is we should be ready for what's coming. So none of the writers are saying, let me explain to you everything that's coming. All the writers are saying, hey, some things are coming. They're going to look like this. Some of these things are going to happen. But it's, they're not, that's not even the centerpiece of the subject. And those of you that are English scholars would, would understand what I'm saying. The centerpiece of the subject is us and what we're supposed to be becoming and what we're supposed to be doing so that when that day comes, it will not catch us like a thief in the night. That's the whole concept in every one of these passages. Jesus did it like that in Matthew 24. He says, look, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines. He says, but don't worry about all that. He says, let me just tell you what you need to be doing. And we studied that our first week of this. And he gave us three big life lessons. Number one, don't let anybody deceive you. They're going to try to deceive you. Don't let them do it. Number two, he says, you need to reject apathy. Don't become apathetic because they're going to do that. And the end time, by the time the end time has started, uh, the whole world is going to be apathetic. Don't let you be apathetic. Don't you just lose your passion for me. And then he also tells us, keep watch. Keep watch. Don't just, don't just go through your life like you know having babies and, and working jobs. Keep watch. I'm coming back. We waiting on me like someone who's in love with me. And then when we looked at the second passage, or last week, we looked at the Thessalonians. And Paul's intent with the Thessalonians, if you'll remember, he had written these books or these letters to the church that he had started in Thessalonica. He started this church, but they ran him out of the city trying to kill him and Silas. And so after they had run out, Paul didn't know what had happened to the church. It probably started in a living room. A bunch of people got saved. They kept coming. He kept teaching. It could have been hundreds. It could have been scores. It could have been just a handful. There's no real clarity on it, but it was significant enough that Timothy went and visited, and he came back, and he gave a report. He said, Paul, they're doing good. They're being persecuted. Their families are denying them because they've become Christians, and they're having hardship with the government, and some of them even are being taken to jail and prison and so forth and having their stuff taken away from them, but they're standing pretty strong. So Paul writes them. He says, I'm so proud of you, Thessalonians. Way to go. Way not to give up on God. And let me tell you something. God will return. Jesus will return, and he'll make all of it right. All the suffering that you've been going through, he'll make it right. Don't you worry about it. So he sends them the first letter. People read the letter and start manipulating. They say, oh, he's saying that the rapture's already happened and you've missed it. You weren't good enough. So when he gets that report, he writes 2 Thessalonians, and he says, whoa, 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 the rapture did not happen yet. And he begins to put things in perspective. He says, listen, it can't happen because the Antichrist hadn't showed up. He hasn't desolated the temple, so you don't need to worry about that. And then he gives us the three lessons that we're supposed to take away from that. And number one was that we need to be alert and self-control. Remember that from last week? Say yes. Three of you. Thank you. I'm good preaching. And then the second life lesson was that we're supposed to have confidence in the relationship. Listen. 
He's your God. He loves you. He's not going to leave you behind. Have confidence in the relationship. Say, oh, you know, my stepdad never did take care of me, left me behind. My mama was never there for me. Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. Have confidence in the relationship. You will not be left behind. And then the third big thing that he told us was hold on to hope. Because remember I taught you hope is the starter to the engine of faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because we're Christians. Remember, I taught you on faith a few weeks ago. And so hope starts your faith, jump starts your faith. And so he's telling, hold on to hope. I know you want to quit sometimes. I know you've been coming to church, and it seems like ever since you've been coming to church, your car got taken away, your wife going and stay with, with, her, with her mom and don't want to talk to you anymore. But he says, hold on to hope. Hold on to it. Why? Because eventually that hope will break through, and you'll see the reward to, of your salvation. And Jesus will come back, and he'll set things right. That's the whole teaching that he was giving us. It was less about, and the Antichrist looks like this, and it's going to happen at this moment, and all this. That was, those were sub-thoughts to the main thought, and that was, listen, don't let anyone, don't let anyone confuse you. Stay self-controlled. Don't fight them back. Don't get in there and, and, and get in spitting and sputtering and stabbing them because, you know, they're doing you dirty. Don't do all that. Have confidence in the relationship. Hold on to hope. And then today, we're going to close out with the, with the Peter passages, First and Second Peter. We're going to look at that passage. But to start today's teaching, we had to talk about Boudreaux and Thibodeau. So Reverend Boudreaux was the part-time pastor of the local Cajun Baptist Church, and Pastor Thibodeau was across the street at the local Cajun Covenant Community Church. And they were both standing outside pounding a sign into the ground the other day, and the sign said, the end is near. You better turn yourself around right now before it's too late. About that time, this Cajun came flying by in his pick em up truck, and he yelled out the window, you religious fanatics, go away, as he flew by. All of a sudden, they hear the screeching of tires and a big splash. Boudreaux turned to Thibodeau. He said, you think we should change the sign to say the bridge is out? Think on these things. Let us think on these things. Some of you are still setting in. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10 is our key passage for today's teaching. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, it says it like this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. When Peter is writing this, you've got to put in perspective who he's writing to and what he's writing about. So let's do that for a moment. Peter is at the end of his life. It's not that he's so old. It's that Nero has determined that he's going to kill Peter. It'll be something that'll get the Jewish people, make them happy. And he sees him as a, as, a, as a threat. And so he's planning. So Peter knows he's going to die. Up until this point, Peter has traveled around from church to church as they popped up in people's homes, as they become house churches, as churches have come together. And he's gone from place to place testifying of what he experienced of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. At this point, he is an older man. It's somewhere around 40, 50 AD. So we're at the second season of Christianity. We are at the second generation of Christians. And so any second generation thing doesn't quite have the same impact. The excitement of it being brand new is kind of worn off. And what has happened is philosophical, bad doctrinal, people with bad motives have started getting involved in these different house churches and churches. And they go around and they're saying things like, you know, Jesus really wasn't the Messiah. He died. And we know the Messiah will not die. And, 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 and so Peter has gone from church to church telling them, wait a minute, not only did he die, but he resurrected. 
and he ascended. And so when he's writing First and Second Peter, he's writing this knowing this is his last letter. This is his last communication. In fact, he writes it to the churches throughout Asia Minor, and he addresses it to them. Most of the epistles are written to a group over here or to a specific group over here, but Peter goes, goes ahead and recognizes, I won't be able to circulate anymore, so I need these teachings, these writings, and my eyewitness to be circulated from church to church all throughout Asia Minor. So he writes it with that intent, and he doesn't personally write it, but he dictates it to someone else as they write it. And as, he, and, and as he's writing the letter, inspired of the Holy Spirit, he says a couple of things. First and foremost, do not listen to these idiots. I was there. I saw him die. I was there when he resurrected. And I was standing there on that mountain as he ascended into heaven. And let me tell you something, he will return. He died as a lamb reigning king of kings. He resurrected as the victorious king. And he will come back as the reigning king of kings and lord of lords. And everything will be set right. So when Paul was dealing with how to keep them encouraged through persecution, Peter is dealing with the churches in Asia Minor who are now being manipulated and, um, and even deceived to believe maybe Jesus really wasn't the Messiah. So it's an attack on their faith. And so what he does is he points to end times... Because he is warning them about what is to come and less about trying to lay out definitively what's going to happen in those moments. And so what he's telling them is that they are lying to you. They are false. To I was there. Were they there? Shut your mouth. You weren't even there. That's the attitude by which these letters are written. And you can feel it. You can feel his like. At the same time, he's dealing with these false teachers that are bringing a sloppy, goppy grace to this whole teaching of righteousness. And what they're doing is using Paul's teachings on freedom. And Paul has been teaching them that, listen, we no longer have to go make sacrifices at the temple. We have been, there is one land that was sacrificed for all. We can have a righteous relationship with the living God. And we can have confidence in that relationship. And we don't have to do all these ritualistic things so that we can now be made righteous. We were made righteous once and for all because of the spilt blood of the Lamb that's been applied to our life. And by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, are we saved. And Paul's been teaching that. What they then said, well, see, then therefore you can do whatever you want to because it's grace. It's grace. And Peter's like, hold up. You have misappropriated Paul's teaching. There is a righteous requirement to be in relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is making you righteous, but you have to submit yourself to the righteousness that Jesus puts in our life. And that's what he's teaching. So he's literally slapping this, oh, sla- sloppy, live how you want and call it grace, and then be mad about, you know, anytime you get any kind of discipline or something from the church body. Peter is setting it straight, and he's doing it on purpose because what has now infiltrated these sweet churches that are now 40 and 50 years old. Come on, you with me? Say yes. And so with that being said, he then moves into, which is so fun, somewhere around the first, in, in, in the second book, he moves into, I want to tell you and remind you about Sodom and Gomorrah. I want to remind you about the flood and Noah and the ark. And what he does is he uses these Old Testament illustrations to remind them that all throughout history, people have rebelled against God. They've made choices not to love God. God then poured out his wrath, or he disciplined that. He disciplined that in the earth. But what he did was he extracted the righteous from his discipline, from his wrath, and he protected them. And so Paul is reminding them that that will come one day. It's coming again because the earth refuses, humanity refuses, propitiation except God as Savior, refuses to accept the Son, Jesus Christ, the propitiation, uh, propitiation of our, for our sin. And as a result, he will pour out his wrath. But again, he's saying... But like Noah, 
who was extracted out of it, and like, uh, and like Lot and his family who was extracted out of the burning of Sodom and Gomorrah. But nonetheless, do not forget, there is judgment to come. It is coming. You just don't want to be a part of it, and you will not be a part of it because you're his righteous sons and daughters. Are you with me? Say yes. So this is the backdrop of what Peter is teaching. So with that, let's go back to our key verse and read the rest of the passage under it for about four verses. In verse 10, 2 Peter chapter 2, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire. A lot of elements destroyed, and a lot of destruction and disappearing and those kind of things happening here. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? And this is really the summary of his end-time teaching. He's not, he's not so intense on what's going to happen in the end times opposed to it's going to happen and what kind of people should you and I be. And he, continue, and he continues on. Or what type of lives should we live? You ought to live holy and godly lives. Verse 12, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. So what Peter is doing is saying, there's a day coming. It's going to happen. So because that's going to happen, what kind of people should we be? And he poses the question, and I would imagine, if I could put this scenario into something that might be a little bit more familiar with you for the, from the last six, seven days. On Monday morning, all throughout the Dallas Cowboy franchise, meetings happened. And these meetings looked a little bit like this Monday morning after having lost another game on Sunday. Are you with me? Stay with me. Everyone, from the coaches, meeting with the owners, the meetings look like this. There is a Super Bowl that's coming. It's coming, and we're going to be in that Super Bowl. Can you hear Jerry Jones? Now listen, it's coming, and we're going to be in that Super Bowl. And then, what did Jerry Jones tell the coaches? And so, you are not prepared, are getting us to the Super Bowl. So something better change. And then he probably, Jerry Jones probably laid out, you're going to change this, you're going to change this, and you're going to change this. Then all the coaches went and met with players all throughout the organization. They're in little back rooms and weight rooms. Come here. And the line coach is saying, now listen, there's a Super Bowl coming. We're going to be in that Super Bowl. But you got to change. And I'm going to give you a fresh assignment. You need to do this, 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 and this. And friend, that is basically what Peter is doing in this. There is a day coming. It's coming. He's not sitting around talking about the Super Bowl. He's talking about what we need to do to be made ready for that meeting, that encounter. He's not laying out, and then at halftime, there's going to be a special show, and I don't know, maybe Aragondi so-and-so is going to sing. I don't know. It's probably going to be sponsored by Coca-Cola this year, and guess what? Some of the seats are going to have special things hidden under, just like the Ellen show. It's going to be magnificent. We're going to start at this time, and this, this group's going to cover it, and our Japanese sponsors, Nokia, will be over here doing this. They don't go into any of that. Why does he not go into any of that? Because that's a sub-thought to the main thought, and the main thought is... You and I got an assignment, and we need to start working towards the assignment so that when this happens, we ain't caught like a thief in the night. We ain't sitting there going, what? Oh, my goodness. No, no, we are ready. In fact, he uses the word promised. Are you with me? What kind of people are we today? Those who are looking forward. Here's the problem with most Christians. You keep looking backward. 
He says, we ought to be the kind of people who are looking forward. And what are we looking forward to? A new heaven and a new earth. You know, I'm not looking back. I'm not worried about, you keep looking back at your past and what you didn't do right last week. You just need to, you need to put your eyes on Jesus and look forward and know that there is a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house or many rooms. I'm preparing it for you. I've got a place for you. You and I need to be looking forward. Why? Because that shows confidence in the relationship. Are you with me? Say yes. And so he's saying, look, you need to have faithfulness in his promise. You need to be, you need to be committed that what he said he will do. And he's promised for those of us who live for him that we will not only not experience his wrath, but when the heavens and the earth are, be, are being destroyed, we will inherit a new heaven and a new earth that's being prepared for us even now. Are you with me? Say yes. This is what, Paul, this is what Peter's telling them. And then he gives them, look at the last verse in verse 14 that we covered. And he says, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort, make, would you say it with me? Make every effort. Let's say it again. Make every effort. Ooh, I I thought I wasn't saved by works. You're not saved by works. You're saved by faith, but you prove your love through your works. Think about it. Let it sink there. I can tell that little lady on the front row, I love her all day long, but if I don't come home, if I go mess around with other women, it don't matter what my words say. I'm not proving my, if, if I don't take the trash out, if I don't provide for our family, I don't protect our family, then, then I'm simply a liar. And there are a lot of people who give lip service to God, but don't actually love him. And so I'm saved by faith. I love you, Jesus. I surrender my life to you. By faith, I'm saved. I'm saved. But what happens is, as in my love relationship, something starts, should start happening. There should be some, so make every effort. There should be some effort there's be some effort. He says, make every effort. So there's, there's action involved in this thing. And he lays out the three areas that we should make effort. We should make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. So let's break those down. So here's our assignments. Here's our three prep assignments, I'm calling them, for end times. First one, number one, to be found spotless. Write that down. To be found spotless. That I am right with God. That there are no spots that have permeated my life. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but every now and then I'll go in my closet. I'm running late. Come on, somebody. I'll grab a shirt that halfway matches what I'm trying to wear. And my wife's going to change it anyway, but I'm going to try my best. And I'm going to put that shirt on. And multiple times it happens to me as I go stand in the mirror, there's a spot, usually right there. Because the week or two before, I wore that shirt and I went out to eat. And something dribbled off my lip, went down my chin, and hit right in my ab area. The devil. How, how it will drip off that and then somehow fly back towards me and land on my abs. Or my abba. My soft, juicy abba. And then I'll notice it standing there, and I'm running late to church. And I'm like, what am I going to do? There's a spot. It's not appropriate for me to stand in front of you with a shirt. First off, I'm trying to sneak it in already by wearing it a second time. But now I have a spot on it, and that spot needs to be removed for me to be appropriately standing in front of you because then I'm not giving you my best. Come on, that's how you feel. That's how I feel. And at my house, I iron all my stuff, and that's usually when I find it. I iron my clothes, and I wash my clothes. Come on, husbands, I'm just telling you what's up. That's right, I do. That's right. 
I do that because when Miss Jamie washes them, I don't like the way she does it, so I'll have to wash my own. She's like, fine, wash your own then. So see there, keep your mouth shut next time, bro. You won't get stuck washing your own clothes. That's what I'm learning. Anyway, so, so anyway, so I, I have this spot, and to remove that spot, it's going to take some effort. And I would like to show you what spot removal looks a little bit like. Let's picture, if we will, that you have your nice white shirt. Come on, somebody. And you went out to David's Seafood. And you got you a little bit of crawfish etouffee. And then you got a little side of fries. But you can't have french fries without ketchup. And so you talking about Jesus and how good he is. And you pull that big old french fry right to your mouth. But as you do, some of that ketchup just falls right on off of that fry. Right onto your nice shirt. Right on your one big ab. And you know what red ketchup does to white cloth. Come on, somebody. I mean, it gets down there, stains it real good. And so now, you forget about it, put it back in your closet, and you go to wear it a week or two later at some great event that you had because it's the only white shirt you got. And you can only bring your shirts to the cleaners once every three months because you ain't got enough money to bring it every week. All right, that's some of you on the same pay scale with me. Thank you. I love you. And so what has to happen is you got to remove the spot. And there's this beautiful stuff that your wife bought called Shout It Out. So part of my doctrine is shout at the devil. Get out there. No, that's not my doctrine anyway. And so what you have to do is apply that substance. And then what do you do? You put it down in that water and you start working it. And you start working it. And it gets a little bit better, doesn't it? But it's still there, isn't it? So you got to keep applying it. And you have to make every effort to remove that spot. It takes work and difficulty sometimes. And that's why I don't understand why some of you give up. You're three weeks into serving God and you're still struggling with perversion. And you're like, I can't do it. I quit. Makes no sense to me. Why? Because you have to work. at remo- The Bible says work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That there is this spot removal process that has to happen. And the more you work it. And what do, what do they do with the washing machines? What do they do with this cloth with a stain on it? They put it in the washing machine with other pieces of cloth. And they get in there and they start rubbing against each other. That's why I want you in small group life. Because I want you to get around other Christians. And as you start rubbing with them, they start helping get that stain off of you. As you start helping getting that stain and funk off of them. That's why we got to have each other. That's why he called us the body of Christ many parts. That's why it makes no sense. You think you're going to make it alone because you, you was a pastor 30 years ago. And because, you know, you, you read the whole Bible. You went to Bible school. And so you can make it alone. And your wife's trying up. And your kids don't want to serve Jesus. Why? Because you're trying to do this all by yourself. And as a result, those stains and spots are just kind of, And you're working so hard but also trying to provide a living and doing all this stuff. You just get up in the washing machine with the rest of us. I promise you, we'll rub you, we'll rub you clean. But the more you work that thing, the little bit better it gets and a little bit better. There's still a little bit of residue. You can kind of see it. And just in and of itself, the statement that we're supposed to be found spotless, the word spotless assumes that there's a spot. Think about it. You need to be spotless. I don't need to be spotless if I've never had a spot. And so you need to understand all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all get saved. Listen, just because I got saved doesn't mean I forget how to roll a joint. Just because you became a Christian, got baptized in the Holy Spirit, and you love church on the hill, and you go in a small group, doesn't mean you forgot those curse words. And you found that out last week at work. Like, where did that come from? You know where it came from. 
And what has to happen is we have to begin to remove that thing. And it takes effort. And we got to work towards it. That's why I'm giving you an account from your past and all again. Why? Because I want to get you in there in the presence of God and all the junk left over from your past and all the stuff that's been attacking you recently. You can just get before the Lord and we can break generational curses. We can pray against sin habits. We can break those things. We can lay hands on you for the power of God to well up inside it, give you strength to overcome it. Right now, somebody ought to take out their phone and register for the encounter retreat this coming Friday night. And you need to get in there and let the elders and leaders and ministers lay hands on you, pray with you, and get in there with other Christians. And let's just get this thing done, start getting it cleaned up. He says that we need to actually, we need to work hard at it. The effort and the energy involved in being spotless make every effort to be found spotless. So I'm going to give you a little chart on how you go to remove stains. Number one, first thing, you got to identify it. Some of you keep pretending like everything's okay because you're used to hiding your sin. It's what you've done since you were a child. Well, the Bible says confess your sins one to another. See, when you and I hide, that stain can't be removed. We have to identify it. Man, I'm still struggling, guys. I need y'all's help. Hey, Lord, I'm still struggling with this. I want to admit that to you, God. I need your help. When you and I identify it, now we can start working the process. The second piece of the process, number one, identify the stain. Number two, apply the cleaner. He said, ooh, what does that look like? Well, it's real easy. The Bible says, through the washing of the word, we're made cleanse. And so let me just give you a little bit of help on that. You know, when I, when I, uh, we weren't Christians growing up. And so, you know, before I was a Christian, I saw all kinds of perversion and wickedness and pornography and stuff. And, uh, and then I became a Christian. I love Jesus, but I still have those images in my mind. Feel the Holy Spirit. Still have these images in my mind. I'll never forget the first year of Bible school. I'm standing there worshiping God and I open my eyes and some girl about two rows in front of me got her pants on way too tight. And as I'm trying to worship God, I see her boot behind me, and I'm like, Jesus, Jesus. All these thoughts start coming to my mind from the past. Come on, are you with me? And, and, and I struggle with that week after week after week. And then I found that scripture that we wash those thoughts through the washing of the word. So I went and found every scripture in the Bible about perversion and purity. I wrote them down on three by five cards. I kept a stack of them in my pocket. And I would sit around and I would, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully upon a maiden. I will flee you full lust all my days. And I would just quote that scripture. I was just scrubbing. I was just scrubbing it and scrubbing it and scrubbing it. And I'm in that service a couple weeks later. And all of a sudden that girl is standing there and she's worshiping Jesus like that. And I'm like, oh, gee, I pull out my car. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully upon a woman. And I'll tell you, I scrubbed on that thing and scrubbed on that thing. Woo! Until I had clean thoughts. That's not to say that those things don't try to come back and get back on you. So you and I need to be constantly scrubbing on those things. When you fail to admit that you have something, you won't identify it. If you won't identify it, then you won't scrub on it. And you won't apply the cleaner of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but we're under the blood of Jesus Christ. Who that old sin? I refuse to have that. So you need to stand in the rightful position and say, I refuse to go back to that old sin. I refuse to have that in my life. I refuse to be a jerk. I refuse to be hard, uh, hard-nosed with everybody. I refuse to be. I'm going to ask Jesus to help me in that and start scrubbing out those spots. And then, as you see, number three, you've got to scrub vigorously. Scrub vigorously. And then what's the fourth? Well, they always tell you, repeat the process. Do it again. Do it again, do it again, do it again. I'm constantly scrubbing on things in my life. Why? It's not by might nor by power, but by his spirit. But it's also working out my salvation with fear and trembling. So he says, make every effort. He's not saying Jesus will make the effort. We need to make the effort. You've got to put effort into a relationship to make it work. Are you with me? Say yes. Well, I said yes to her. What else I got to do? I bring the money home. I don't understand the problem. You've got to make effort to make that relationship work. 
And that's what, that's what Peter's challenging us, to make every effort to be found spotless. Here's the second thing he challenges us on, and this is our assignment, and that is to be found blameless. To be found blameless. What I'm about to share, you're not going to like, but let's go into it anyway. So the first one was, be found spotless so that I'm right. The second one is that, be found blameless, that I'm right with others. That I'm right with others. Be found blameless. You and I, the Bible says that, especially if we're going to be uh, in leadership in the church, that we should be above reproach, blameless, that people can't bring an accusation against us, that we can't, we can't sit there and someone say, yeah, you did this and you did this and it's, they're right. And so when it's talking about blameless, it's really in relationship with others. And look at that passage. We quoted it a few weeks ago in one of our teachings, Matthew 5, 23, therefore, if you're offering a gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go first and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So what he's teaching us, you, you're in the presence of the Lord, and you're so great, and then all of a sudden you have a remembrance. You did somebody dirty, and they don't like you. We're dealing with this in one of the churches that I oversee, that one of the leaders has done some things and people are telling the pastor, I cannot go to church here because you've got that leader up on that stage. And as a result of them being up on that stage, I cannot worship God. I cannot believe in God because of what they've done. So with me counseling the pastor, we had to go back and say, leader, you need to go make this right with these people. You are not blameless. You have blame against you. Years ago when I was a youth minister, I had this guy and a whole group of them get radically saved. They were a bunch of little gangsters in our little city. And, uh, and, and this one guy's name was Big Mike. They called him Big Mike. The reason why they called him Big Mike because he was about 5'9 and 500 pounds. I mean, he was big. I mean, he was a big kid. And, uh, and, so, uh, and so he got radically saved. It was awesome just to see him worship. And I was teaching something similar about making things right, which is what real repentance is. And he came, comes to me after one of the services. He passed around. He said, uh, what should I do? He said, you know, last year when I was doing all my wickedness, he said... Um, I stole a police scanner. I said, you did what? He said, yeah, there's this police car. I tried to steal it, but I couldn't steal it, so I just stole the scanner inside of it. I was like, you broke into a police car? He said, well, it was sitting right there open, and they weren't around, so yeah, that's what I did. I was like, are you crazy? And so, and so he said, uh, so what should I do? I said, well, you need to make it right because you have blame against you. It hadn't been made right. And he goes, so what do we do? I said, we're going to go down to the police station, and you're going you're to give it back to them. And, and, and he goes, what if they put me in jail? I said, well, then that's what they do. Zacchaeus said, I will return everything I've stolen, and I will pay back twice as much to everyone. I'll give half my earnings to the poor. And Jesus said, salvation has come to your house today. Because he recognized that there was a higher value at happening here, and that is being right with God and being right with others was more important than being rich and wealthy and sneaky and deceitful. And so Mike said, Big Mike said, well, all right, let's do it. So I put him in the car. Actually, I put him in his car. Think about that. And then we went, we went, and I said, hey, just sit here for a second. And I went inside, and I got an appointment with the police chief, and I sat down. And I said, let me just, I want to ask you a question. Suppose there were these people <laughs> who had been the terror to our city. Just suppose, I mean, stealing things, being horrible. They were on your top hit list of people in this city that you were trying to find and take down and catch. Suppose they got radically saved by the power of Jesus Christ and our youth ministry because we're so anointed and gifted and their lives have been turned around. Suppose that were to happen. He's looking at me like, "Uh uh-huh. I said, and then suppose, just suppose, one of them came and confessed that they had stolen something from you, chief of police. 
would it not be awesome? Because of the great turnaround that they've had in their life, would it not be awesome to let them slide from judgment on this one? And just, especially if you get your property back, would that not be awesome? And he looked at me and goes, you talking about Big Mike? I said, oh, man. Dang. And I said, well, what if I was? He said, what did he steal? I said, no, I'm not saying that he stole anything. But what if there was a police scanner missing out of one of your units last year during the fall festival when one of your guys stupidly walked away and left the door unlocked? What if that were to happen? Because there should be the blame too, right? <laughs> He's like, Adam, just hold on. He goes, you know what? If that young man came and looked me in the eye and I knew that he was changed, I probably would have grace. I said, I'll be right back. Went and got that man, young man. He's about 19 years old. Had him look the uh, the chief in the face and tell him about his transformation, how God had changed his life. And I want you to know that police had grace on him, took that scanner, didn't write him up, didn't, 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 you know, take him to court over or anything like that and let that young man go. That's a beautiful testimony. See, Mike is now blameless from what he had been blameful, if there be such a word. He's blameless because now what he's done is he's identified it, dealt with it, and so you may have a relationship that you're not blameless in. And it takes, according to Scripture, to go to them and reconcile with them. There, there may be nothing you can do with them. They may say, I hate you. I never want to talk to you again. But you'll be able to say, yeah. But in October 2018, I called you and I tried to make it right. And I did my best to be blameless with you and, and do whatever I needed to do. And you would not receive my call and you would not return my call. So that's now between you and Jesus because I'm now blameless. I did my best. And Peter is telling us, not only should we be spotless, but we should make every effort to be blameless. And then he gives us a third charge, and a third prep for what's to come by saying this, and that we should make every effort to be found at peace with him. Speaking of Jesus, that we're to make every effort to be at peace with him. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about a, twofold, a two-sided coin. For those of us that are Christians... Sometimes we're not at peace with God because we may have surrendered to Him as our Savior, but we've not surrendered to Him as our Lord. And what I mean by that is we may say, yes, I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father except through Him. But I'm not going to let Jesus dictate what I do for a living. Nor am I going to let Him tell me how I should forgive or not forgive someone else. And we don't surrender to His Lordship in certain areas of our life. And we struggle with letting Him to be Lord. And I had a real struggle with this. When God asked me to pastor church on the hill. I was like, no. And I began to wrestle with God. I wrestled with him. Like, I'm not, why would I do that? I like being, I like traveling the world. I like being a Christian superstar. I like being picked up from the airport in a nice car, took, taken to the nice hotel with my little gift basket waiting for me. I like preaching and, and giving them the word and walking away and not have to worry about them. That's their, the pastor's problem. I like that. God said, no, I want you to do this. And I had to, I was wrestling with him about it. And because of that wrestling, there was no peace. And finally, I said, God, I want you so much in my life. And I so am frustrated there's no peace in my life. I will surrender. Because can you imagine wrestling with God? Why do we think we can wrestle with God? It's like, you know, it's like, have you ever had your two-year-old wrestle with you? I mean, like, can they really do anything? It's like we've got his pinky and we're putting all our effort and energy into it. And he's just like, yeah, you got this, buddy. And at the end of the day... When you and I surrender to his lordship in these different areas of our lives, just say, Lord, you be Lord. And when I surrendered to that, I said, Lord, I'll do church on the hill. That's fine. 
I'll just do it. I, that, I, that's what you want me to do? I will do it. And as I surrendered to his lordship, peace came over me. And the joy of your lives and the intersection of your lives coming into the intersection of Jamie and I's life. And that now we're a spiritual family and, and we're touching the nations and we're touching our city and, and people are getting right with God and marriages are being put back together. I, I was wrestling with him because of my ignorance, because I didn't trust him to do something great in my life. And once I surrendered and said, God, all right, I don't see how this is going to lead to anything great. This doesn't even go with the prophecies that you've spoken over my life over the past. But Lord God, I will not, rest, I will not wrestle with you because I want the peace that surpasses all understanding because it's supposed to guard my heart and mind and I've been wrestling with you. And then some of you, you've been wrestling with God in reference to salvation. And you've said, it can't be your real God. I went to church as a kid. The church was bad. The people were bad. You've wrestled with the truth that there's a Savior and that there's an end coming and that all men have an appointment with death and then the judgment. You've been wrestling with that. And so nothing has satisfied you. Nothing brings you peace. You've been married multiple times. You've done all the drugs you could try, all these different things that you've tried. You've tried to be successful in business, and none of it has brought you peace. And the reason why it hadn't brought you peace is because you're wrestling with his lordship and just simply saying, Jesus, you are Lord, and I surrender my life. And he says, and to be found at peace. Let me give you an assignment, he says. The end is coming. It will be, the world will be destroyed with fire. Destruction will happen. The earth will be ripped apart in blazing fire, the elements will be laid bare. And he says, and so as a result of what's to come, make every effort to be spotless. Make every effort, every effort to be blameless with your brothers and sisters and humanity, people that you know. And then make every effort to be at peace with Jesus Christ. That's what he gives us. He doesn't care. He's not talking post-trib, pre-trib, uh, amillennial. He, he, that's not even the point. The point is something great is coming. Should we, how then should we live? Who, how sh- how, who ought we, should, uh, should we be, is how he words it. Be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Jesus Christ. I want you to stand with me all across the room. I want to minister to you for the next couple moments. Because I could feel in the spirit room, the moment I hit a couple of these things, you were like, oh, Jesus. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes to create a safe space for just a moment. Peter is giving us an assignment. And the first one is to be spotless. And with your head bowed and your eye closed, maybe you admit and say, Pastor, I've stopped scrubbing on a spot. I've let this linger. I've kept this in secret because I didn't want to be embarrassed about it. Friend, I tell you, now is the time to identify that sin habit. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm not saying you're not going to heaven. Peter's not even saying that. He's saying be, make every effort to be found spotless. What do you and I need to scrub on right now? What have we let linger? What have we allowed to, to be embarrassing? So we hide it. Had a spot on a tie, so what did I do? I didn't wear that tie. Had a spot on a shirt, so I wore a tie over that shirt. To try to hide it. Instead of hiding it, let's bring that to the forefront. Scrub on it. Get it cleaned under the blood of Jesus. Get the word of God scrubbing down to the depths of that, of that stain. Let the wind of the spirit wash it out to be found spotless if you've got an area that you know you haven't been scrubbing on maybe it's bitterness maybe it's perversion maybe it's anger maybe it's maybe it's stealing maybe it's lying. i don't know i'm not i don't i won't even want to go down a list but you know the lord's tugging at your heart and i want you right now to just surrender and say lord i want you to help me i don't want i want to be spotless i want you to make a covenant decision right now that you're going to scrub on that 
that you're going you're gonna to apply the word of God on it. You're not going to just give up and quit. That you're going you're gonna to walk this thing out. And put some elbow grease on this thing. And let the word of God do what it does. And let the spirit of the Lord strengthen you in the process of it. And be secure in the relationship. Having spots doesn't mean you don't belong to him. Having spots means you're human. Having spots means that we live in a dirty world. I taught on that a few months ago. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray right now that Church on the Hill, that we, individual members, individual Christians, those watching, even the, the podcast of this, Lord God, would, they would make a covenant relationship with you not to give up, to start scrubbing again, not to take some false teaching that you're okay with unrighteousness. But Lord God, that we would, in love, relationship with you, begin to scrub on those areas that don't look like you, Jesus. They're not your nature. They're not your character. They're not your way. God, we just want to scrub on that. We want to be found spotless. Now, Lord, I pray for those, oh God, that aren't blameless. As I hit that point, I could see some of you down deep, the conviction of God bringing people to your, to your remembrance, to your mind, people that you're not right with, people that have accusation against you, people that, <clears throat> that have something to say. Were we to make you a pastor and bring you up on the stage, we'd probably get some emails about you or some Facebook post about you. You say, well, Pastor, I've tried. Well, try again. Identify that and go make that thing right. If you're at the altar worshiping your God, remember that your brother has ought against you. Leave your sacrifice. Go make it right. Be reconciled and come back and then worship. Father, I pray right now in Jesus' name for those of us who just did life and people got offended, people got hurt, people got, we didn't mean to, or maybe we did in that season of our life. Lord, we want to make it right. Help us to be blameless, to work towards that, to make every effort. God, I thank you, Lord God, that we will see the supernatural power of God to bring that around so that we, Lord God, may live in peace and unity with all men, as your scripture says. I want to hit the third area that Peter challenged us on, and that is that we'd be at peace with God. If you've been wrestling with the Lord about something, you can't find peace. You're like, I don't know why I don't have peace. That probably means that you've been wrestling with the Lord and there's a surrender that needs to happen. And right now, whatever that is, would you ask him, say, Lord, why am I wrestling with you? I don't understand why I don't have peace in an area. And would you ask, open up your heart and mind to hear his voice? He speaks to you. You may not recognize it, but he does speak to you. And this is a safe place for him to speak to you to show you maybe a core fear has kept you from surrendering to his will maybe you're scared of being poor that's why you won't make this leap of faith maybe you're scared maybe you're scared of being caught in something so you won't stand up for something I don't know what it is but you need peace in your life be at peace with the Lord don't stand against him don't fight against him in an area Father I pray right now that you would help us with that reveal that to us and some of you, you're not at peace with the Lord because you've run away from him. In fact, you can't even call yourself a Christian. You want to be a Christian. There's something inside of you that wants it, but there's this wrestling going on with you as whether or not the church is a fake, whether or not God is real. You've heard some things, you've seen some things, and as a result, you have doubt, fear, and unbelief. But you're here today, or you're watching by way of our podcast, and, and you feel in your heart, you feel the tug of God. He wants to be at peace with you. He wants to be your Lord and Savior. 
You say, well, what do I have to do? The Bible says if you'll confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What that is, is he's saying, I will start the relationship just by your confession. I will, I, I will engage you as my son and daughter just by the confession of your mouth and the belief of your heart. And then he goes on to teach us throughout his scripture that he'll cleanse us and he'll work this thing out as we come into relationship with him. You keep trying to figure out how you're going to be good and not be bad. He's just trying to figure out how you'll come be in relationship with him. He died on a cross. He thought surely that would be enough. Your sins have already been repaid for. All you have to do is access that through confession and commitment of relationship. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, you say, Pastor, I'm not a Christian. I used to be. I used to serve God, but I walked away. Today's your day to come home. Maybe you say, Pastor, I've never really been a Christian. I don't, I don't really know what that means, but I know that I want a relationship with Jesus Christ. Friend, I got good news to, to you. I'm going to pray with you right here, right now. I'm not going to call you forward. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to point you out. This is your moment. This is a deep personal decision. I know we're in public, but every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. So you can make this decision without feeling the, the stares of others. So here today, with every head bowed and every close, if you're not a Christian, if you've been away from God, you want to come home, would you let me pray with you? I'd like to connect you here today with the living God. No one's looking around, just me, you, and heaven. If you say, Pastor, that's me, I'm ready for a change. Would you just slip your hand up and admit that to yourself, to heaven, to me? So it's time. Thank you. Thanks for your honesty. Thank you so much. Thanks for being real. I really appreciate you. Thank you, sweet love. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Anybody else? Pastor, pray for me. It's time. I need to make it. I'm ready. I don't want to live like this anymore. Give me about two more seconds. Quickly slip your hand up. Make sure I see it. Anybody else? see him. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. Now I'm going to lead you in a prayer. A prayer of repentance. A a prayer of dedication. A prayer of relationship. In fact, I'm going to get everyone in the audience to pray it out loud with you. But those who lifted your hand, this needs to come from a place of sincerity in you. A place of realness in you. This isn't the game. This is you making a serious, lifelong commitment. And Jesus cleansing and healing every part of you. So today... I want to lead you in this prayer, and I want you to say it like this. Say, Jesus, Jesus. a little better. Say, Jesus, Jesus. today I admit I'm a sinner. I admit I've sinned against you. And I ask you, Jesus, to forgive me. Forgive me of my sin. Here and now, I accept what you did on the cross for me. And in front of everyone, I declare Jesus is my Lord. Write my name. In your book of life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Today, I'm yours forever. And I'll serve you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name. Keep your head bowed for just a moment. Father, I pray for every man and woman who prayed that prayer with all sincerity. Maybe for the first time, maybe coming back to you. I pray right now they would sense the peace. Peace. Being right with you. They don't have to perform. They don't have to give money to the church. They don't have to be good. They're yours. And that is peace. God, I pray right now, Lord God, as they go on this journey with you, a new journey of you cleansing and washing and transforming and falling deeper in love with each other, God, I pray that no weapon formed against them will prosper. God, I speak, Lord God, against the plans of the enemy to try to steal their faith. And Lord God, I speak faith into them like they've never felt before, a confidence in the love relationship that they now have with you. It's new. It's fresh. It may be as redeemed, but whatever it is, Lord God, it's sincere. And God, we seal that and thank you for it. Now, Lord, I pray that Church on the Hill would be men and women who are ready. Lord, we close out this series 
about end times, about a thief in the night. And Lord, we're, we just declare we're not scared. Come tomorrow, we're ready. Lord, we may not be perfect. And we may have wanted to do some other things with our life. But Lord God, we are not living in shame. We're not living in wickedness. And so Lord God, come, Lord Jesus. Your servants await your arrival. We love you, Jesus, and we bless you in Jesus' name. And all God's people shouted amen and amen.